0: If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning, I'll be reading from Revelation 20 and 21. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound for him a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed him Sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here. I hope you're having a very Merry Christmas. Um, I'm grateful that you visitors are here too. As I was walking around this morning, I just saw so many friends and family visiting from somewhere else. And, and I want to say welcome, welcome to Abilene. Uh, if this is a strange place for you, welcome back home. If you're returning back to kind of old stomping grounds, uh, this season of Advent, we've been uh, we've been following the story of of Jesus through the apocalypse of John, which might seem a little bit strange. We've been we've been tracing the story of the dragon. And the arrival of Jesus, not so much as babe in a manger as in Luke, but, but although that's true, uh, I want us to think this Christmas about Christ, the King, who arrives and brings victory in the battle against the powers and principalities, even against death. And I think this week is the week where uh, websites begin to publish their kind of like best of lists of of 2023 and they they begin to you know their most looked at articles or if you have Spotify or other kind of apps they might say here's the music you listened to this year um and it's kind of that this year in review this time to kind of pause and reflect on on what has happened and 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 I think for for Highland for us as a community what a year we have experienced Uh, This year we have welcomed even more new people to be part of the Highland family, and I I don't think there is a, a better way to express what Highland's DNA, what we are about, than what happened last Sunday. I don't think we planned this, but it just happened. If you missed last week, you ought to watch the live stream, because every moment of that service was an expression of God's love and the hope that we share as believers. My Sunday was a tremendous week. We had surprise baptisms. I don't know if you could see it from where you were sitting, but from where I was sitting, there was this moment, if you weren't here, let me tell you briefly, this, this mother and her daughters were being baptized, giving their lives to Jesus. And, and they said, but wait, there's one more. And then her son, her teenage son, came into the baptistry to be baptized as well. And in that moment, you saw that woman's face move from surprise and shock to joy and then love and then this peace. You could see the, the waves of Advent, those emotions just flowing right over her face as she's witnessed her son give her life, give his life to Christ. We witnessed our children as full participants in the worship service as they told the story of Jesus. We gathered around the table and we shared the joy of Jesus even as we endure hard times together. If you want to know what Highland is about, just look at the service from last week. This has been a tremendous year, and I'm grateful that we get to share it together. I'm grateful that we get to do life together. And today I have exciting news, because we're going to hear the end of the story, the conclusion of the life of the dragon. We're going to find out what that thousand-year reign actually means, and you're going to hear a little bit about the Battle of Armageddon and when it's going to happen. But before we jump into all those quick answers, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for this this place and and this opportunity to be gathered together. Father, I am grateful for this community that worships you so faithfully, that pours their lives out, even, even in hard times, sees and seeks the joy that you offer us. And so now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray... You pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, "Amen." So, if you're if you're visiting, let me give you just a little short, brief summary of where we've been these last four weeks. We, we talked the very first week that we begin our life, our li- we live our lives between two trees. We live our lives between eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the garden and kind of being aware of our own sinfulness and moving our lives toward the direction of the tree of life in the city of God that's at the end of the book of Revelation. And everything in the cosmos is moving toward from the first tree to the second tree. And this is what Michael read in, in Romans chapter 8. Even creation itself is groaning and longing to be redeemed. And that's what we do together. We we grow and we mature and we learn how to live well and love well. And we learn how to see the world the way God does and we learn to live the way Jesus lives. And then there was this strange nativity scene in the book of Revelation. There's less sheep and goats and donkeys as we take our angle and kind of change the perspective and we cast it up into the stars. And up in the stars, what we see is a woman and the pains of childbirth. And there is a great dragon that looms to eat the Christ child as soon as it is born. It is a a fight that is both decisive and comical. It's decisive because the baby is snatched up into the heavens, which, by the way, is the most compressed uh, gospel ever told. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, all in one sentence. In Revelation, it's the most compressed gospel and then he is seated on the throne this this it is comical because there's this fearsome dragon that cannot even defeat a pregnant woman and her newborn baby the dragon frustrated in defeat flees to the earth to wage war against the followers of the christ child and this is where in the story we meet two beasts One is from the sea, and one from the land. One who uses brute force to intimidate and destroy. One whose silver tongue entices and deceives. And the war that is waged by the dragon through these two proxies is played out in a million different ways, in a million different scenes throughout history. And this completely incomplete evil struggles to destroy the people of God, but they will not be victorious. They will be thrown into torment. Now, here's the thing that's confusing as you read the book of Revelation. Because it looks like this dragon just keeps coming back. It's defeated and its forces in chapter 12. It's defeated with the nations surrounding the holy city in 19. And then it's defeated again in chapter 20. And we talked about maybe this is kind of like those campy horror films in the 1980s and 90s where the evil one or the cursed thing just raises its claw one last time, again and again and again. And this is how we end up with, you know, Halloween 12. but, and so I want us to see that in some ways what the author, what John is trying to do in this apocalypse is kind of just tell the same story from different perspectives. It's not that evil gets defeated over and over and over and over. This is all the telling of the same moment. But that same moment is so powerful and it's so packed with meaning and there's so much there to, to dig into that he keeps coming back to the story to see it again from a different angle to show how it provides hope. But on the other hand, I think that all of us could articulate how evil gets defeated over and over in our lives, yet we still struggle with hard things and evil. You just figure out how to deal with anxiety and worry, and then you have other stuff that you have to deal with. You just get over the the fear of your own death or the the worry of, of your children and then you realize there's other concerns that you have to deal with. It reminds me of my friend Jesse. Jesse died about six years ago but when he came into my life, I was working as a campus minister in Arkansas and uh, Jesse was hired to be uh, kind of a groundskeeper slash custodian for the church. And he was one of those hires that um, the, the, the wisdom of the church was, was brilliant in this age because they just saw somebody that they knew needed to be drawn into community and needed to, to have a place around people that knew how to love him because he needed a, a shelter for a little while. Uh, when Jesse was first hired, he would tell you because Jesse was straight honest he was an alcoholic he would say I'm more than an alcoholic I'm a drunk But man Jesse worked hard I'd never seen someone that had more strength in his body than Jesse who had more endurance I just there's one time I was talking to him while he was working raking a bunch of leaves I'd never seen somebody work so furiously to pull leaves out of grass and eventually, over time and over work and over, over process and the power of the Spirit working in his life and, and people surrounding and love him, Jesse finally got sober. He would say, I finally got done with drinking. And his life changed and his health began to change. And even the, the light in his eyes began to, 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 to be transformed. He was like a whole new person. And this was one of those church stories that everybody loved to tell because everybody wanted to see that transformation in him and he was, he was kind of this person that the whole church had embraced and loved and, and, and through the process had seen, seen the victory happen and it was such a great story. There was this one day where Jesse was, he was painting in a, in a hallway and I was walking through and, and we just stopped and we got to talking. I was this 28-year-old campus minister. He was like a, a 58, 59-year-old custodian and we were, we were talking about how it felt to be sober he was telling me stories and Jesse said you know I finally got done with drinking but now I have all these other problems to deal with he thought and the church wanted to believe the narrative that said when he got sober everything would be great but the reality was when he got sober he realized all the other things that he had to deal with the broken relationships in his life the disordered relationships he had with his kids and all of this mending that had to occur from, from the mistakes that he had made in his past <laughs> so I, I, I see how Revelation it shows the defeat of the dragon over and over and over and over in our lives because that's how reality is we see the defeat of evil only to have to deal with some other evil. But I see the defeat of evil here. When you when you break the generational curse of abuse or rage in your family, the dragon falls. I've seen friends who restore their marriages from the brink of divorce and walk it back. And I see the dragon fall. And I've seen people take the courage to mend relationships that they could easily walk away from, just, just cut and run. They, but they do the hard work to, to, to remain friends. And in that moment, I see the dragon fall. And I've, I've seen those of us this year who, have, who bear up under grief, uh, un, unimaginable grief. And in that moment, I see the dragon fall. I've seen this church care for the stranger and the widow and the orphan. And in that moment, I see the dragon fall. So there's this battle at the end of time. It's kind of this cool story. Armageddon is the Greek name for a hill in a valley called uh, Medigo. And it's in, it's in northern Israel. It's a real place. You can go there. And, and, and Armageddon literally translates as the mountain of Medigo. Medigo. Um, but it's really just an artificial mound. It's just like a pile of dirt. It's, it's probably only 80 to 120 feet tall. I, mean, I know that feels like a mountain here in West Texas, but it's really just kind of a, a mound. And it's, it's just enough to, to put a defensive structure on the top of it to, to guard and protect the valley. But what's, what's notable about this site is that historians believe that over 80 battles were fought in that valley throughout the course of history leading up to the, the moment of of John's narrative. It's just one of those places in the world where armies tend to meet. It was this well-trod place between Europe and Africa and Asia that makes for convenient fighting for armies. It's like France in the 20th century or Ukraine today. It's, it's one of those unfortunate places in the world. And so when, when John brings up this place, everyone in their minds, they know exactly what it is. It's where you go to fight. It makes sense that this vicinity would become kind of the, the lasting symbol for the, the cosmic eschatological battle between good and evil. Uh, Robert Nounce notes, the geography is not a major concern in Revelation. W- wherever it takes, Armageddon is a symbolic of the final overthrow, the face forces of evil by the power of God. There's this great conflict between God and Satan, the Christ and the Antichrist, good and evil, that lies behind the perplexing course of history that will end in the, the issue and the final struggle in which God emerges victorious and take him with all who have placed their faith in them. This is Armageddon. Sam Storm says it this way, Armageddon is the prophetic symbolism for the whole world and its collective defeat and the judgment by Christ in his second coming. The imagery of war of of kings and nations doing battle on an all too familiar battlefield is used as a metaphor of the consummate, cosmic, decisive defeat by Christ of all his enemies. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, all whoever bear the mark of the beast on that final day. And I wonder if, if John was writing his apocalypse now that he might use instead of a battlefield, which is kind of uh, unusual or, or distant for us in our minds except for in our imaginations, he might, he might use a football field instead here in West Texas because that's kind of the, the iconic place where, where struggle is, 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 is personified, where it's made real. What's fascinating about the Battle of Armageddon is that it's not really a battle at all. It's not a fight. And, and, and I think in our culture, we glorify the, the battle over the victory. Between Endgame and Infinity War and in Marvel, you have about three and a half hours of battle scene, just people punching each other. And Return of the King, this is uh, Tolkien. You know, the, the battle that rages at the end of that, that trilogy or the battles that rage across the, the, the galaxy in, in Gavin and Endor, Our our culture tends to elevate the battle over the victory. But that's not what happens. And and, the Gog and Madog and all their forces are, are gathered together in this one moment and they're surrounding the city of God and it looks like certain defeat. It looks like the end has come. And Jesus appears and the battle is done. There's no struggle. There's no war. Jesus shows up and there's victory. That's all there is to it which is a little less, like, dramatic than I think that we like to tell ourselves in our head. But it, it, it's, it's, it's a hurricane fighting a flea. It's a comet crashing into a cup of, a teacup. There's no, there's no struggle. Jesus appears, and victory is achieved. The sword is in, is in, is in his mouth. It's not even in his hand. It's his words that will bring victory. And it calls us back to John chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 1, where it's, it's merely God's words that create reality. God doesn't have to do anything. God just makes the world. Jesus, through his mouth, creates victory. The battle of Armageddon brings the final defeat of the evil forces that rebel against God and resist Jesus Christ. It's not an actual military battle in Israel and Israel. And if, if you're reading that text this way, I think you're going to feel mislaid, especially about the millennium that we're going to talk about in a second. A, a literal fulfillment would have been possible, theoretically, in the first century when armies fought on swords with, or on horses with swords and spears and arrows. However, even then, it would have been impossible to picture all the people of the earth assembled at Medigo in the Jezreel Valley in order to wage war against God's people. Not to mention the Old Testament prophecies expected the final battle to take place in Jerusalem and on Mount Zion. The final battle of history is the destruction of the political, cultural, and religious systems of the world that opposed God and the defeat of the ungodly who refused to follow the Lamb. The last battle takes place when Jesus returns for the final judgment. Jesus wins the final victory of human history. Not with military might, but with the Word of God, and then there's also this curious part of this text about the thousand-year reign, which, if you're a student of church history, you know is it's either pre-millennial, it's post-millennial, or it's ah millennial, right? A premillennial says that Jesus returns and then establishes a literal thousand-year reign of of peace in the world. A a postmillennial view says that we get everything right. We kind of get ourselves organized for a thousand years and then Jesus will return. The first view, the premillennial says, it doesn't really matter how terrible the world is going to get. In fact, we expect it to get terrible because uh, maybe we should even let it get terrible because the more terrible it gets, that ushers in the return of Jesus for this reign. A post-millennial view has such a high view of human ability that we ought to work to get it right, and if we work to get it right for a thousand years, then we can somehow pull Jesus into the story. But all of those kind of lie flat. to so this all millennial view that says it's not a thousand years. A thousand years for John is just a long time. It's just it's just a rain. It's it's a really long time. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by humanity came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The end of the story is the victory of Jesus. And Jerusalem comes from heaven down to earth and the old earth has passed away and there's this new thing that's being born. And Jesus is the first fruit of that, that new heaven and new earth, that, the first gathering of a new harvest, the first payment on a new stock dividend. And in, in California, there was this kind of festival that would happen uh, organically every year when the first strawberries arrived from Gilroy. And the first strawberries of every season were always the sweetest and the largest and, and, the, and the most red. They were always picked to be the most ripe. And since you live so closely to that place, by the way, you get your strawberries probably from Gilroy as well. There was, it was the, they were the best strawberries. And so there was always this festival when the first fruits arrived because everybody would rush to Trader Joe's and all of those places to, to, to get the strawberries. But we knew when those first strawberries came, that it was summer. We knew that was kind of, it was kind of the mark of the beginning of, of strawberry season. Or maybe you remember getting your first paycheck two weeks or four weeks after starting your first job and, and, and you received that check and maybe it was even a paper check. They used to be paper. They're probably not so much anymore. Now you just kind of get an email that tells you what you got. Um, but that, that, that paycheck and you opened it up and it was, it was the first fruits of the work that you had put in. And then every first paycheck opener, looker, observer asks the question, who is FICA and why are they taking so much of my money? <laughs> uh, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the first installment on what is to come. What is, what is to come? It's the new heavens and the new earth. Look, Revelation isn't for us to decode and decipher it's, it's not a mystery book that was written so that you could pore over it and, and figure out who the antichrist is or, or where that last battle Armageddon will happen and, and who's going to be involved it's not going to come from Russia or China or from the US that's not what John intended revelation isn't for us to decode and decipher it was written to a group of Christians who are facing significant suffering and persecution terrible things and it was written to give them a living hope. And if you understand that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, if you understand that he was the first installment on something to, become, the, something to come, it enables you to face things that otherwise you would not have been able to face. Because you have not just an abstract idea, but you have living hope. Our hope isn't about leaving this world as separate souls. That's not what our hope is as Christians. Our hope is about heaven changing earth. It's about an improved world where friendships are healed and there's no more sadness and, and everything works the way it's supposed to. And this is the hopeful world that John promises us. And this is the hopeful world that we can see in the lives of one another as dragons fall. Because hope can change things. We see this clearly in the early Christians who kept their faith even when times were very hard. Hope helps us act bravely in the present because of what we believe about the future. Just think about all the people who were slaves but still held on to hope, held on to hope. Hope is durable and strong. And to find hope, we need to believe in Jesus' death and his coming back to life. His resurrection promises us a fresh start, showing us that even our struggles can make us better or change us. And what all of this means, no matter what happens to you now, it can only make you better. No matter what you're enduring right now, it can only make you better. And this is what Natasha and Aloni and Iana and Zach and Matthias and, and, and Tracy and Felix and Chiana experienced these last few weeks in baptism. What they experienced is that everything else that comes after that moment will only make it better. We, we, we face everything with hope. Tim Keller says it this way, there are only two things that can happen after your baptism in the face of adversity. Life with Christ will transform you into a better person or it will kill you which will really transform you into a better person. If you believe in the resurrection, death is not a thing anymore. It's just the shadow of a thing. The dragon is defeated over and over and over, bound with a chain and thrown into the abyss, a hole so deep and dark, you can't see the bottom of it. Jesus drank the bitter cup so that we might eat from the tree of life. And I know it's Christmas, but we sing this song on Easter. Jesus Christ is risen today, and and there's a verse we don't often sing, but I I love the, the last line. It says, Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave the skies this living hope makes us satisfied calm humble and joyful it makes us people transformed to look a little more like jesus every day will you please stand for our benediction Brothers and sisters, there is, even on Christmas Day, there is the world as it is and the world as it should be. And I think we're always going to experience a little bit of gap between those two worlds. But the promise of resurrection is not only the world as it is and the world as it should be, but there is a world that is coming. And so may you this week live in hope of the new world that is coming all around us, even today. May you go in faith, peace, and love.